Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Sunday, November 15th, 1964, Saigon. Hi, hon. Time now is about 8.15 Sunday morning, Saturday, your time. We arrived here at 5 p.m. on Thursday, after a two and a half hour trip up from Hong Kong. I'm still having difficulty sleeping and eating. This morning, I was awake at 5 a.m., so I got up and showered and dressed and read a while. These are the adjustments we all have to make out here. Apparently, it takes about two weeks. On arrival, they had a reception for us, where we were introduced to all of the team officers. They are a most friendly group. This was my grandfather's first letter home to his wife, my grandmother, when he arrived in Vietnam in 1964. I've asked my partner to read it. My grandfather was 45, same age as I am now. He was a senior officer, Lieutenant Commander Douglas Babineau. I will be on fixed team site Saigon. This duty entails daily patrols to harbors, airports, and outlying areas. In most cases, the patrols to outlying areas which are 10 to 20 miles, are restricted due to one thing or another. I start my work officially next Thursday the 19th. I'll do this duty for a two-week period and then off to the north for a month. It's pretty well known that some Canadians fought with the American Armed Forces in Vietnam, but fewer people know about Canada's official peacekeeping role there. Between 1954 and 1973, close to 2,000 Canadians went to Vietnam to observe different peace accords. My grandfather was one of them. I knew him as a gentle teddy bear of a man. But before I was born, he'd had a long career in the Navy. He was in World War II and Korea before being sent to Vietnam. He knew from the outset that he would be stationed there for a year as a peace observer, though there wasn't a lot of peace to observe. We're living on the sixth floor of the Hotel Katina. At night, you can hear the gunfire outside of Saigon. Also, you can see the napalm bombs exploding off in the distance, probably about 20 miles away. Funny business, this. I'm Aaron Moore, and this is Storylines. Today, I'm taking you back in time, 50 years ago, to Vietnam, and the untold stories of the Canadians who were there. My mother gave me my grandfather's letters a few years ago. She found them cleaning out her basement. There are 154 of them, mostly written on translucent airmail paper, and they feel fragile in my hands when I unfold them. My grandfather's writing is tiny and precise, and they're addressed to my grandmother and my 18-year-old mom, Jackie. The letters made me want to know more. What was my grandfather doing there? What was it like? And above all, I wanted to make sure that he and the other Canadian veterans who served in Vietnam were not forgotten. Well, hon, I will close for now and mail this. I miss you and Jackie very much. I love you all. Tons love, Doug. 
sure when I was last here. But it has been a long time. I'm at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. I wish my grandfather could be with me here, but he died 20 years ago. So I'm meeting up with another veteran from Canada's commissions in Vietnam. My name is Charles Simmons. I was involved in the planning initially as a senior operations officer. I served about five or six weeks as a regional commander and eventually ended up as deputy chief of staff operations. Charlie reminds me of my grandfather. He's 88 years old, wearing a brown suit and tie. He still has the air of authority of a senior military official, but it's softened by his warm smile and a genuine twinkle in his eye. A curator at the War Museum has told me there's a plaque here mentioning Canada's participation in Vietnam, so Charlie and I go looking for it. A young attendant offers to help. Are you looking for a section in particular? We're just looking for the Vietnam section. Ah, so Canada actually didn't participate in the Vietnam War. There is a section that talks about uh, some this, this man was there, <laughs> so that's where we're going. <laughs> this reaction is actually pretty typical. So I explained to the attendant that Charlie was part of the International Commission for Control and Supervision. I don't know it off the top of my head. Let me call some of my colleagues, but I imagine it will be okay. It's so interesting to me right now, Charlie, that he doesn't know where this is. No, no. Yeah, very few people know about uh, about, and I mean, our the, the fact that we were there since 1954 is not well known either. I mean, very very few people know anything about it. But there is a plaque, and we do eventually find it. Here we are, right here. What does it say? 1954 to 1975, hundreds of Canadians served in two international missions in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, supervising ceasefire agreements and in the 1950s preparing for national elections. Okay, so John, just say your name and your title. Across town from the museum, I meet up with one of the few people who has deep knowledge of Canada's military role in Vietnam. John McFarlane. I'm a historian at the Directorate of History and Heritage in the Department of National Defense. John has been researching the official history for more than a decade. Yeah, so in 1954, there was a Geneva conference that was called to help France leave. And France wanted to leave because they got clobbered and they understood that their colonial period was passed in Indochina. An international commission was created to oversee the handover from French to Vietnamese control. The countries chosen to oversee that peaceful transition were Canada, Poland, and India. So Canada was selected. They didn't volunteer. It was considered they were the most appropriate to represent the Western side. When my grandfather arrived in Saigon, peace observers like him had been coming and going for a decade. After the French left, North and South Vietnam were partitioned, with a plan to unify after elections were held but nationwide elections never happened. The U.S., worried the communists would win, increased their presence in the country and started pushing for the South to become independent. That's the part of the story most people know, American troops landing in South Vietnam and fighting a long, costly, deadly battle with the North. So by the time my grandfather arrived, Vietnam was far from the peaceful unified country envisaged by the Geneva Accords. Instead, Vietnam was at war. 
My grandfather's main job was to look out for illegally imported weapons and to investigate any violations. Thursday, November 19th, 1964, Saigon. This morning I did my first official day's work. They called the inspection control. First we go to the Saigon docks where we drive up the docks one way and down the docks in the opposite direction. All the while the Indian colonel is taking down the names of the ships. Then we pile into vehicles and off we go to the Saigon airport where we carry out a similar type of inspection. From his letters, I can tell that my grandfather was stationed all over. They're postmarked from Saigon in the south and small towns and outposts all the way up to Hanoi in the north. March 20th, 1965, Hanoi. I went for a walk the other day and saw at several places around town, store windows, billboards, etc., pictures of the American pilots who were captured subsequent to being shot down during the bombing raids. The North Vietnamese are making full use of the propaganda value of these prisoners. I feel very sorry for these three pilots, as they do not have prisoner of war rights, as officially, USA is not at war with North Vietnam. What they will eventually do with them is anyone's guess. Not just American warplanes were getting shot down. One used by the International Commission that my grandfather had flown on was shot down in 1965. October 21st, 1965, Nha Trang. Hi, hon. This morning, at 7.30 a.m., I was listening to the news when they announced that the ICC plane en route to Hanoi was missing. Three Canadians were on board. As I write this now, I don't know who the three Canadians are, and I'm waiting with a heavy heart to find out. We are a very small group out here, and I know I will have lost a personal friend. They are still searching for the plane, which is down somewhere in the jungles, Laos or North Vietnam. It has been missing since 3.30 p.m. Tuesday the 19th. I've traveled many times in this plane. Another letter is dated just a few days later. As yet, they haven't found the plane. The Canadians lost were one sergeant, one corporal, and one external affairs civilian. The area you fly over on the way to Hanoi is a mountainous jungle, so they may never find it. I understand they've given up the search. The civilian that was killed was married in June and only had two weeks with his wife before departing for Vietnam. My grandfather was in Vietnam from November 1964 to November 1965. I couldn't find any veterans who served during those early years. Those still living are from Canada's final commission in 1973. Historian John McFarland says that by this point, the U.S. was desperate to get out. And to get the United States out was in the interest of everyone. The warring parties signed the Paris Peace Accords, an agreement that called for a ceasefire and the withdrawal of all U.S. troops within 60 days. But that couldn't happen without international help. They had to have a commission that would supervise the peace agreement. And Canada wanted no part of it, but the United States convinced them to go for a few months. So Canada was able to help America get out and save the lives of the the prisoners. By then, Canadian peace observers had been in Vietnam for 19 years, 
but the new peace agreement called for a new international effort, and a whole new group of Canadians were sent over. Uh, if that's where the, the action is, that's where you want to be. Charlie Simmons, who I was with at the War Museum, was one of those Canadians who went in 1973. Very simply, we were to supervise and control the implementation of the agreement, which included uh, the cessation of hostilities, a ceasefire, the withdrawal of the American and other Allied troops, the Koreans, the Australians, the release of and return of prisoners of war uh, and civilian detainees, and ultimately the supervision of elections, of free elections. The Canadians were joined by troops from Poland, Hungary, and Indonesia, all working as peace observers. Many of these Canadian veterans are still alive. We need to take a quick break. Storylines will be right back. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm at a historic brick building in downtown Ottawa. It's a military mess hall. Inside, there's a bar to one side. To the other, long dining tables are set under a high ceiling. Tonight, 17 veterans from the 1973 Commission and their wives are here. They've been gathering nearly every year for the past 50 years, traveling across Canada to see old friends, the only other people who remember what they went through. I see that Charlie's here. He's telling his comrades about our trip to the war museum. Well, we're known, and the the young man was apologizing because he didn't know anything about this. And I said, you're just 99.9% of the Canadian population. They have no idea we remember that. (laughs) I'm not the only one here trying to change that. Rory Corey, the curator of Calgary's military museums, has been doing oral history interviews with the veterans while they're here in Ottawa. Have sort of become forgotten veterans, um, and you know that's that's one of my main thrusts as a curator. Since I've been at the military museums in 2006, I try and give recognition to underrecognized groups of veterans. My name is Fabian Farrell. I'm from Glacier, Nova Scotia. Went to Vietnam in 1973. And got called in. I went in. She said, "You're heading to Vietnam tomorrow morning." You know, you talk about fast, that was fast. I thought, you know, this is part of her job. I never dwelt on, you know, getting killed. Fabian Farrell was a military police officer. He was based at the International Commission's headquarters in Saigon. Just before we landed, you know, we get a pistol and ammunition. And I knew, well, this is the this is the real thing because they never give that a They're pretty safety cautious, you know. Soon after arriving, Fabian found himself face-to-face with the casualties of war. On a day-to-day basis, we we started operating an operation center. If you had somebody injured or whatnot coming from the helicopter pad, getting them from the helicopter pad into the hospital and getting them back. 
That was just one of the roles Canadians would play. In my mind, the whole name of the game was to get the American prisoners wars out of there. The Canadians and their partners conducted more than 30,000 prisoner of war exchanges while they were there in 1973. 504 of them were Americans. These are prisoner of war going on to a herc. And, and Frank Bryant is showing me photos he took of prisoners of war boarding a helicopter. I was in Vietnam in 1973 as a member of the prisoner of war exchange teams. There was one plane load that I released that was multiple amputees, some with no arms and no legs. They, they come out of a, a hospital and, and the like, and, and uh, um, the American that was on the gate just stood there and cried. He says, we did this. One of the prisoners they got out? John McCain. John McCain, the former U.S. senator and presidential candidate. He was held for five years as a POW. But anyway, get the Americans out, and we did that. But uh, we didn't stop the war. The war was still going on while we were there, and, and we watched it as it unfolded, and we had these people out there. We had a plane shot down with the Canadian on board, and we lost a life because of it. Another aircraft, this one in 1973. Canadian Armed Forces Captain Charles La Violette was one of eight killed when an aircraft carrying members of the International Commission was shot down. The event shook Frank, just as a similar incident had shaken my grandfather in 65. And it was a whole different ballgame when we flew after that. I had a flak vest on and I sat in one. But we were, well, I was scared, I guess, the honest thing, when we flew afterwards, you know. The death was a turning point. Historian John McFarland says it challenged the Canadian government's resolve to remain in Vietnam. Canada was was sent, and the official line, the intention, was that they were going to observe a peace. But when you have a casualty, a death, then that confirms that there's no peace. So it's a very different situation if Canada is in a war zone compared to Canada being in the middle of a ceasefire. At some point they said, okay, that's it. We're out, we'll stay another certain period of time, but that was a big part of it. But they weren't out yet. Less than a month before Canada would pull out, two Canadian captains were captured and taken prisoner. My name is Fletcher Thompson, and I served with the ICCS in 1973. Fletcher Thompson was one of those captains. We had planned to go on a reconnaissance visit to three of the the villages within our area where we'd been before. On a previous occasion, we'd actually encountered the Viet Cong, these men with guns at the side of the road in a rubber plantation area, and we identified ourselves with our interpreters, and they said, fine, because we didn't have weapons. We weren't posing a threat to them at all. On this occasion, they said, okay, we have to hold you until we get direction from our headquarters. The Canadians were separated from their interpreters, then marched through the jungle from one province to the next. They were marched with nooses around their necks. Part of what they wanted us to do was to write a statement and sign it to acknowledge that they controlled that part of the country. And he said, I'm a captain. This is way beyond my pay grade. I can't do that. So we have these sort of interrogation sessions for at least an hour every day where they come back again and say, here's what we need you to sign. But... uh, there was no thought of trying to escape into the jungle. They had their weapons and were, were watching us uh, 
throughout. And eventually, they managed to negotiate our release. But it was 18 days later, and uh, we were fed the same as they ate. But I managed to lose about 25 pounds in that period of time. The doctor told me it was a good thing I didn't stay too much longer, just because of the fact that I'd lost weight and this is the stress of the situation. The stress of the situation was something all of the veterans experienced. Fletcher, Frank, Charlie, Fabian, my grandfather were in a war zone, trying to keep a peace that didn't exist and witnessing suffering they could do little to alleviate. Suffering that the locals lived every day as their homes and cities were devastated. In 1964, my grandfather wrote from Haiphong in North Vietnam. Most houses have no water. They draw it from a tap on the sidewalk. The few stores there are have absolutely nothing in them. The people are dressed very poorly, most have patches on patches. The majority wear sandals made out of used car tires. It reminds me of a city which has been hit by an atom bomb, and they're starting all over again. It was unreal, the damage that had been done by American bombs, you know, and uh, it's just terrible, the destruction that was wrought on that country. September 16th, 1965, Guignan. This town has some pitiful sights. There are 90,000 refugees who have fled from the communist-controlled area. They're living all over town in cardboard and tin lean-tos, no sanitary facilities. The government is working like mad to help them, but the problem is tremendous. All of this chaos and everything, you're, you're looking at women just trying to feed their kids. And I, I, I remember a woman there um, downtown Saigon, I was going down walking. And she was pointing to her breasts and she, she said, no, no, no milk, no milk. But, you know, that was it. she was starving to death and her kid was going to die just because of lack of no milk. But you look at it and you say, is there any sense to this whole thing? Doesn't matter who wins or who loses, you know? It was just craziness. And, and, and I think it's the first time in my life it really comes to the, that there's no real justice, there's no sense of fairness, there's no sense of anything. It's just who's ever the biggest and strongest uh, survives. Of all the veterans I met, Fabian Farrell was the most open about the toll the experience took on him. I got into trouble with drinking. I think a lot of it started in Vietnam. Eh? I wasn't aware of it, but drinking just blocked everything out. You just want to forget it. Canada pulled out of Vietnam two years before the end of the war. Between 1954 and 1973, about 2,000 Canadians served in Vietnam in a peace-observing role. The last commission, in 1973, after the Paris Peace Accords, lasted just six months. The servicemen returned home to little fanfare. Charlie Simmons. When we came home, we landed in Vancouver, there was no press. There was no uh, fuss or bother. The, the general extras was there to welcome us back and thank us for the work we'd done and things, but that was it. I, I feel that, that there was not enough respect given to this commission, not even within the military, I mean. And once the Canadians were home, 
Charlie says the public just wanted to move on from an unpopular war. I guess nobody likes being associated with failure because it, uh, you know, the Vietnam War itself was a mark of the, the failure, and it had been going on since the 60s. It's part of the reason these veterans have been forgotten, the shame and stigma of the war, that and the fact that so few Canadians served there. But Charlie says they did make a difference. The prisoner exchanges prove it. And so I think, you know, we left there very proud of what we had accomplished. Back at the reunion in Ottawa, the 17 veterans wear suits and ties, some with military medals pinned to their jackets. Charlie Simmons looks forward to this yearly get-together with friends who know the history firsthand. You renew old friendships, and uh, we all retell old war stories, which we've probably told everybody a dozen times already. But uh, more importantly, we get to see how our our old friends are, uh, are getting along and surviving in spite of all the vicissitudes of life. When everyone is assembled, the chatter quiets down, and Fletcher Thompson takes the mic. He was one of the captains taken prisoner in Vietnam. Now he heads the Veterans Association. And Fletcher has some news. It's getting harder and harder for the veterans to make this trip because of their age. This year, they've decided, will be their last reunion. This will be the last of our events of this nature. And certainly appreciate everybody being here and have a pleasant social time this evening. a bittersweet end of an era. I, I think you always regret, quote, the last, but uh, I'm 88 years old, so I'm not sure how many more I'd be attending anyway. <laughs> Rory Corey, the curator of Calgary's military museums, knows it could be his last chance to record some of their stories for his archives. We, we want to preserve that story, we want to carry that story forward, and, you know, really show the world that Canada had a role to play and that it was an official role as well that that, uh, people don't know about. Oh, I think it changed my whole life. Even today. You know, I I don't believe in a good guy or a bad guy. You know, it's it's only a, a dream, you know? From his letters, I can tell that my grandfather's time there changed him too. April 15th, 1965, Saigon. They say that in every experience, there's a lesson learned. And my experience out here has made me realize how important your family is. Sometimes, when you're home, you can't see the woods for the trees, and you're inclined to take people for granted. This all adds up to the fact that I am counting the days to getting back to you all. I love and miss you very much. Tons love, Doug. That documentary was produced by me and Alison Cook. A version of that story originally aired on CBC's The Sunday Magazine with story editing by Donna Dingwall. And that's it for this week's Storylines. The show is produced by AC Rowe, and we're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. If you like what you're hearing on Storylines and want more, hit subscribe, save to your favorites, tell a friend about us, leave us five stars. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Erin Moore. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.